At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we are going to be continuing a sermon series we began last week called Defeating Death. Victory crowned at great cost. This series looks at Matthew 26 through 28, the last couple of days of Jesus' earthly life as he goes to the cross and offers his life as a payment for our sins so that we might be forgiven and we might get to share in his victory. Through his resurrection, we get to share in that victory as well. You know, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at these verses a little more in depth. Last week, we began our study by seeing that Jesus' life was given by him. It was not taken from him. Jesus was not a victim, but he willingly went to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to offer his life on the cross as a payment for our sins. We saw that last Sunday in the first few verses of chapter 26. But today we're going to continue our study as we see that we have an opportunity to value him, value Jesus most. And we're going to see that from verses 6 through 13 in chapter 26. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just ask you for a moment to think about what you value the most. What do you value the most in life? For some of you, as I ask that question, you might think of a possession, a family heirloom, or your dream house that you have begun or completed construction on. For others of you, it wouldn't be your possessions. For others of you, it would be your position. You would think about the influence you have in your community, the job that you have, the things that you are productive at. That's what you value the most. For others of you, it would be your family, your children, or your spouse. But what is it that you value the most today? As you're thinking about what you value the most, I want to challenge all of us this morning to reorient our lives to where what we value the most is not any of those things, but is Jesus himself. And valuing Jesus is something that is never wasted, and it's actually the right thing, the logical thing for us to do when we remember who he is and what he has done. We're going to see that this morning. But before we see that from Matthew 26, I want to tell you a story about a man named Robertson McQuilkin. How many of you know who Robertson McQuilkin is? Hey, thank you, Ryan. You went to his school, so you, you know this, right? Uh, but Robertson McQuilkin was a very accomplished missionary. Uh, for 12 years, he served in Japan. For 20 plus years, he served as the president of Columbia International University and Seminary, and he grew that school significantly during his time in leadership. I first became acquainted with Robertson McQuilkin when I was a student at OU, and somebody gave me a book that he wrote called The Great Omission that really helped shape my perspective about the Great Commission and our opportunity to be a part of what God is doing to reach the nations for Christ. But Robertson McQuilkin was a man who had left quite an influence in a number of different areas, and he had a position that was enviable by many inside the Christian community. But those things are not really why Robertson McQuilkin is most famous. 
Robertson McQuilkin is most famous because in 1990, his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And rather than leaving her behind, he chose to quit his position at the seminary and go home and care for his ailing wife. Many of his colleagues looked at him and thought he was crazy. They wondered why he would give up an influence that was so significant to care for just one when he could impact the millions. But McQuilkin, when asked about this decision, said this. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm. It was no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do us part? This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. In such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. Friends, this is what McQuilkin was most famous for. He demonstrated what valued most to him in this life, not his position, but something greater. At first glance, it appears that what he valued the most was his wife, but knowing the full picture, what he really valued the most was his Savior, and he longed to love his wife even as Christ loved the church. McQuilkin demonstrated through his actions, not just his words, what valued most to him in life. And I love what he said. It was no, cal- no great calculation. In other words, he made the right call, and we remember him for it even today. Friends, I tell you that story because this morning we're going to open God's word, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13 together. And in these verses, we see someone else who also made a decision to value Jesus more than all else. And that decision, if we were to ask that person today, I think they would answer the same as McQuilkin. It was no great calculation, but it was actually the right thing to do. The thing that she wanted to do the most was to value Jesus most based on what he had done for her. And friends, in her life and example, you and I are challenged to value Jesus most as well. And we're going to see that today as we look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. So if you've got a Bible, open up. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and see three things from these verses together today. Matthew 26, verse 6 says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you but she will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Friends, in these verses, we're gonna see three things today. 
The first thing I want us to see in these verses is this. I want us to look around the table. I want us to look around the table. Now, when, when I say that, you might be wondering, what table? And I think that's an appropriate question to ask. The table I want us to look around first is the table where this event took place. And as we look around that table, as we set that table, we need to think about when it was and where it was and who was there and why were they gathered. So let's begin by thinking about when this event took place. Now, when Matthew shares this in Matthew 26, he does not share it in chronological order. Matthew is here talking about an event that took place a few days before he records it here. I think Matthew told this story out of order because by telling this story here, it shows the great contrast between the response of Caiaphas and the response of Judas Iscariot and the response of of Mary. But when we look at the parallel accounts in the other gospels, we find out that this account actually took place on the Saturday before Jesus was crucified the next Friday. It took place on a Sabbath day. And it took place just a couple of days after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine uh, the setting just a few days before Jesus goes to the cross, just a, a few days before he enters Jerusalem for that Palm Sunday entrance, and just a couple of days after he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus gathers for a meal. That's the timing of this event. Now, not only do we need to look at when this event happened, but let's think about where this event happened. Both Matthew's account as well as John's account in John 12, let us know that this event took place in the town of Bethany, a city that was just over the hill from Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. The location where Jesus would begin his Palm Sunday ascent as he went up and over the hill and down into the city of Jerusalem. It took place in this city of Bethany. Now, Bethany had inside of that town a very famous resident, Lazarus. Remember, this event took place just a couple of days after Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, and it took place in the community where Lazarus lived, the community of Bethany. You realize if we were to go to Israel today and we were to walk into the West Bank and we were to go and look for ancient Bethany, we would find a city that is built on the very site where Bethany was located. And you know what the name of that city is? In Arabic, it says the place of Lazarus. Bethany, both then and now, was known for the significant event that took place there that Jesus Christ showed up and he spoke to Lazarus, a dead man, and called him forth from the tomb. It was in that place, within eyeshot of that tomb, in the community that had witnessed it, that Jesus shares this meal. But it's interesting, when we look at Matthew's account, we find out that the event was not just in Bethany, but it was at a very specific location, at someone's house. Whose, Whose house was it at? You see it inside of those verses? 
a guy named Simon's house. Now, Simon was a common name, and there were a number of different Simons, but this took place in the house of one particular Simon. Which Simon was this? What do we know about this Simon? This is a real question. You can answer it. He was a leper, right? It took place in the home of Simon the leper. Now, here's something you need to know about leprosy. Leprosy in ancient times, if someone contracted leprosy, they were not extended normal civilian rights. As a matter of fact, they were taken outside of the community, away from the people of God, away from the opportunity to worship. They were placed out in leper colonies. And when they would go out there, then they would go back to the house. And you know what they would do to the home of a leper? Leviticus tells us that they would tear it down stone by stone so that the disease would not spread. If that's what happened to the home of lepers, and if that's what happened to lepers, what does that tell you about Simon? Simon was not just a leper. He was a former leper, right? Something happened. Most likely, Jesus had healed him of this terrible affliction so that he might have been restored to his family. He might have a house again where a meal could take place. Can you imagine this moment in the town that is known for the resurrection of a dead man, in the home of someone who had been ostracized as a former leper but now could host a dinner party? In that location, six days before Jesus goes to the cross, he gathers for a meal. And who's with him at that meal? Well, this was before the days of Evites, and so we don't have an exact RSVP list. Before, you know, Google Hangout and Facebook events and GroupMe, uh, we have to deal with just what the Scripture tells us. And, and the Bible doesn't necessarily give us a comprehensive list, but it does let us know that at least 17 people were at this dinner. 17 people were around that table. There were the 12 disciples, and there was Jesus. That's 13 of the folks. But who else was there? Well, it was in the home of who? Simon, the former leper. And not only was Simon there, but in John's gospel, we find out that who else was there? Lazarus. Lazarus, the former dead man. And not only was Simon the former leper there and Lazarus the former dead man there, but also Mary and Martha were there. And who are Mary and Martha? The sisters of Lazarus, the former dead man. They went from the funeral to the feast and their brother joined them. Friends, are you you getting a sense of what was around that table? Why did they gather? Well, they probably probably gathered to celebrate, don't you think? I mean, first of all, it was a Sabbath, and in that time as well as in modern times, Jewish people will gather on the Sabbath with with family and, and celebrate and remember God's faithfulness and his goodness. No doubt as these folks gathered on that day, they, they, they gathered to celebrate together what God had done. Can you imagine the conversations that, that took place around that table? Just look around that table and imagine who's sitting where. And imagine Lazarus saying, hey, I was dead, and now I'm alive. And they're like, I know, I saw it. 
It's amazing. I'm guessing that happened before they passed the potatoes. That subject would have come up. And not only that, but Simon goes, you know what? I used to be living ostracized. I couldn't worship. I had no community. I couldn't be here. I have a house. I have a house and I have a table large enough to host you. I mean, can you believe this? I'm guessing that that came up before they had the salad. And not only were were those there, but but also you had Mary and Martha who who went from weeping and in despair to celebration. They, they, They would have been celebrating that. They would have been remembering that. And not only that, but the disciples would have been going around. They're like, you know what, Lazarus, guess what? You were resurrected. I know I was there. But guess what else? You're not the only one. We saw this happen before. Jesus, who is sitting right there around the table, he has done this before, and we saw it with our own eyes. And not only that, but he said he's the resurrection and the life. He's offering hope and life to all of us. Simon, I realize that this is a big deal for you, but guess what else? There's blind people who can see and deaf people who can hear, and we have seen all of these things happen. I mean, can you imagine this moment? And Jesus is present there. Friends, this this picture is just so powerful. When I think about the events of the scripture that I wish I was at, this has moved up the list significantly for me. I wish I was there. I wish I could have heard what they were saying, celebrated those moments. Jesus sitting there, just a look of love around the table to everyone who was present. Can you imagine it? Don't you wanna be there? Guess what? We will be. We will be. What is heaven? Heaven is a collection of those of us whose lives have been dramatically changed, gathering around the table, remembering and celebrating what God has done. See, in, in, this, in this account, there's a lot of formers in there. There's a lot of formers. Lazarus, the, the former dead man. Simon, the, the former leper. Matthew, who is writing this, the former tax guy. Mary, the, the former girl next door, just the citizen of the city. Now, because of these actions, because of her connection to Jesus, we're telling her story 2,000 years later. The disciples former just Galilean businessmen who have had their lives reoriented and replaced onto something different entirely. You know what's gonna happen in heaven? We're gonna be together with those formers and we're gonna celebrate what God has done. That's our future. But you know what else, friends? It's also our present. It's also our present. When we gather on a Sunday, when we gather in a small group, you know what we are? We're just a bunch of formers. former addict, former divorcee, former person who was identified and marked by failure and sin. We gather together not because we're so great. We gather together because Jesus has changed our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you He goes through a long list of sins. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
Friends, as we gather together, we are people whose lives have been changed. And so we gather as a collection of formers. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn and look down the row. I want you to look around. What you see around you, friends, are some formers. Now what I want you to do is I want you to to turn around and look behind you. Those of you at the back, you don't have to do that. Um, Keith, that's, that's why you sit back there. Bill, that's why you sit back there. You don't want to have to turn around. You sit back, you can see it all in front of you. You sit in a corner like a cowboy at a bar. I mean, you understand this, right? So, so here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are gathered here today, a bunch of formers whose lives have been radically transformed by Jesus. Friends, before we ever talk about valuing Jesus the most, we need to remember what he's done. We need to look around the table. We need to look around the table. We need to remember what he's done in our lives. We need to remember what he's done in the lives of those around us. And that changes our affections. It changes what matters to us. It changes about our orientation to Jesus himself. He's not just a religion. He's the one who has changed our lives. That collection of 17 knew it. That's why they gathered. That's why they celebrated. For us to understand what happens next, we need to begin by remembering what's around the table with us. Second thing we need to see here, though, friends, is this. Value Jesus more than all else. Value Jesus more than all else. Now, we see this in Mary's action, remembering what Jesus had done, knowing her motivation, right? Knowing that Jesus is the one who had not only changed her life, who had not only taught her, but also had resurrected her brother from the dead just a couple of days prior with all of that swirling around in her mind and in her heart, it's no great calculation for her to to go and to honor Jesus and to value him more than anything, more than anything else. Well, how does she do that? Well, she takes this alabaster jar full of probably her most valuable possession, full of this ointment, as it is called in Matthew, this this pure nard, as it is described elsewhere in Scripture, this very expensive imported perfume that would have cost about 300 denarii, John tells us, some one year's wage. Her most valuable thing, she takes it and she pours it upon Jesus. Now, this is what you need to know about an alabaster jar, There was no screw on top. So they they didn't just open it, pour some out, and then close it back up. But it actually, when they broke the top of that off, it would all be used or it would all be wasted. And so she took this that was of such great value to her, her most valued possession. She breaks the top off and she pours it on Jesus. She puts it on his head. She puts it on his feet. And then she gets down on her hands and knees, John's gospel tells us. And with her hair, she begins to clean Jesus' feet with her hair. Such, a, such an amazing scene. In this moment, Mary is revealing for us that she valued Jesus more than anything else. She valued Jesus more than her most prized possession. She would rather it be poured on him than sit on her shelf She would rather he be honored than her future to be secure 
in some way because she knew she had that thing over there. She broke it and she honored Jesus with all of it. Such a powerful picture. She valued him more than her possessions. Not only did she value him more than her possessions, but she valued him more than her dignity. I mean, this is not a dignified posture. She's down on all fours. She is literally wiping his feet with her hair. She was not dignified, and it didn't matter because honoring Jesus was more important than how others perceived her, even in that moment. She valued him more than her comfort. She could have sat back. She could have done nothing. But again, because of who Jesus was and what he had done, it was no great calculation. She took what she valued the most. She sacrificed and valued Jesus more than anything else, her dignity, her comfort, her possessions. She gets down and she's honoring, honoring, honoring him. Such a powerful picture. It makes sense when we remember what he's done. Now, friends, what do we do with this? Well, one of the things that I think we ought to do is what Matthew hoped that we would do and what God hopes that we would do out of where Matthew placed this verse. Compare our lives and what matters most to us to the key players in this story. Are we like Caiaphas? Who was Caiaphas? Well, Caiaphas was a man who was the high priest of Israel, and we saw last week that he valued his position more than Jesus. He said, it's better for Jesus to die and me to keep my kingdom than it is for me to lose my kingdom and Jesus to reign in power. Caiaphas had had made that call. His position was more important to him. Is our life more like that? Do we value how our role is in our neighborhood or how dignified we are or our position or whatever it might be, do we value that more than Jesus? That's what Caiaphas did. Or are we more like Judas Iscariot? Judas Iscariot in this situation, he he valued his possessions more than Jesus. He valued his possessions the most. What What did Judas do? Judas sold Jesus out for how much? 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He cashed out because possessions meant more to him than Jesus. We like Judas and that we want to hang on to our stuff. Our stuff matter more to us than Jesus. Or we like Mary. Mary obviously valued Jesus most of all. And it wasn't just something that she said. It was something that she did. She demonstrated it for us as she valued him most. Now, what does it look like for us to value Jesus the most? Those are thoughtful questions, but but how do we get involved? For some of you, you might be going, I don't have any perfume in my house, (laughs) okay? So I don't know how I'm going to apply this. I mean, me personally, when I was in the eighth grade, I had a little bottle of Dracar Noir uh, cologne, Right? I think it was the last bottle that I had that was bought and purchased to try to disguise the smell of eighth grade. Okay, that, there was, that was in my life at one point. It might have go dig that out of my parents' house and break it open and pour it someplace. Is that our response? Well, no, y'all are smarter than that, right? What does Jesus want us to do in response? He wants us to honor him. 
Value him and honor him more than all. Remembering who he is, remembering what he has done. He's the one that bled and died for us to provide a sacrifice that would cover our sins so that we might be forgiven. Remembering that, what does it look like for us to honor him? Remembering that he created this world and made it a place where we could live. Remembering that reality, what does it look like for us to honor him? Well, remembering and knowing who's around that table. Part of what it looks like to honor him, I think, is to honor him with our possessions. To honor him by giving freely of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Giving to the church, giving to the poor, giving to mission efforts around the world. Friends, when we value Jesus more than all, our attitude towards our stuff changes. Friends, I, I tell you this, not because I want you to give to Wildwood. I want you to give to Christ. It's not for me. It's for him. Look around the table. Look at what he has done. In light of what he has done, we give, not that we can give it all. I mean, we, he wants us to be able to have a place to live and food to eat. It's part of why God has given us the resources that he's given to us. But based on what he has given us, that we would give systematically and regularly back to him as an acknowledgement and as a reminder of who he is and what he has done. Are we honoring him with our possessions, not hanging on to them, but honoring him more than all? I think it's one of the applications that we see here. But also, are we honoring him with our obedience? Are we honoring him with our obedience? Not just looking at at this from a financial thing, but are we willing to obey him even if it looks undignified? Even if it looks uncool? Even if it goes against the flow of those around us, am I willing to honor him by obeying him, knowing that he loves me, knowing what he has done for me? Am I willing to take him at his word and not take matters into my own hands? Honoring him with our possessions, honoring him with our obedience And guess what? That could start today. When I say those things, you might go, well, you know what? I haven't honored him with my stuff. Guess what? You can be a former in that category. And knowing and remembering what he's done for you, you can change that side of your life today. You can be a former in terms of obedience. You might be like, well, I've not been obedient to him in the past. Okay, what are you gonna do tomorrow? How are you gonna follow him today? we value him most. It's always worth it. Look around the table. Value Jesus more than all else. The last thing I want us to see is this. Prepare to be misunderstood. Prepare to be misunderstood. Now, we see this very clearly in the passage. As Mary is so moved by who Jesus is and what he has done for her. And she does this amazing thing by breaking this alabaster jar and by anointing his, his body. There are those who are looking on and watching this scene unfold who don't understand it. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us, the disciples say, why this waste? Why is it that you're, you're wasting this jar. If you wanted to give it away, fine, but let's, let's sell it. Let's give it to the poor. Let's do something more productive. Why would you take something so valuable and waste it on Jesus? This is what his disciples said. But even more specifically, John tells us that 
Though that may have been what the disciples were thinking, there was one disciple who spoke up, and that disciple was Judas Iscariot. John tells us in his gospel, he says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Friends, Judas had an agenda. He wanted the vial sold so that he could take his cut. The rest of the disciples, they did not have that kind of an agenda, but they still misunderstood her. And the reality is when we determine to value Jesus more than all, there will be those around us who look at our lives, look at our actions, look at our behavior, and it just won't add up to them. It just won't make sense to them. And they'll question it. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? They, they, they look at this and they say, well, why this waste? Jesus doesn't say, why this waste? He says, hey, why are you bothering her? What she has done is a beautiful thing as she has anointed me for burial. What Jesus is saying here is something really remarkable. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Isn't that a, isn't that a wild thought? Jesus is the only person who should say this, okay? You should not say this when you get your birthday gift. I'm worth it. You should not say this on Christmas morning. I'm worth it. But Jesus can say that here. I'm worth it. Why? Because he knew what he was getting ready to go do. He was getting ready to go and offer his life as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven and that hope might be given to all the poor people that have ever lived upon the face of the earth, poor both in finances and poor in spirit. Tom Constable says this, he says, they did not realize that the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make would solve the basic need of every poor person throughout all of history. Jesus was worth it because of who he was and what he was getting ready to go do. Now, friends, when I look at this passage, there's a section of this passage that is often quoted. And it's this section where Jesus says, the poor you'll always have among you. And often when I hear this verse quoted, I hear it quoted something like this. See, Jesus said it, we don't have to care for the poor. Since we're not gonna solve poverty, we don't have to care about the poor. But friends, that's not what Jesus was saying. Friends, this verse and this passage was not given to give us a theology of poverty. What Jesus was saying is he was talking about an, an issue of what we value the most. It was an issue of priority that he was more valuable and more precious than anything else. But in doing so, Jesus quotes this phrase, the poor you'll always have among you. You know where he got that? He got that phrase from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. You know what the rest of Deuteronomy 15 says concerning the poor? It says, the poor you'll always have among you, therefore open your arms wide to help them. To help them. This was not a verse to encourage people to not care for the poor. Jesus had just said, the followers of Christ at the end of his Olivet Discourse that we looked at two Sundays ago will be known for their love for the least of these. 
His point is not that it's, it's not good to help the poor. His, his point is that th- this moment in history, something very remarkable was happening. He was getting ready to go to the cross, and Mary, through her actions, knowing who Jesus was and what he had done, had totally reoriented her life, her possessions, her dignity, and her comfort to get down and to honor him, to value him the most, and it made total sense. It was not a miscalculation. And because of her action, not only was it not wasted, but also it would be talked about forever including 2,000 years later in Norman, Oklahoma. Pretty cool, right? Michael Green says this. He says, those twin facts that nothing done for Jesus is wasted and nothing forgotten should nerve disciples to take the cap off their alabaster jars of precious possessions and pour them out for Jesus. Friends, as we do that, we need to be prepared to be misunderstood but it's worth it. When we honor Jesus most and we we give, some will look at it and call it irresponsible. Motivated out of a love for Christ, our generosity makes sense. It's no miscalculation. Some will look at our willingness to forgive and they'll call it enabling. But it's no miscalculation based on what Jesus has done for us. Some will look at our interest in reaching out and sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus with people all over the world, and they'll feel like it's controlling. It's no miscalculation based on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It is the response that makes most sense. Friends, Mary saw the situation. She knew that Jesus had paid it all. And so she was willing to give all to him. We follow that example and respond the same way. As we gather, look around the table. Think of what Jesus has done and have it be the motivator for us to respond in faith to him. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to worship today. We pray that you would just be honored, not only in our listening to your word But Father, that you would be honored in the way that we respond. Just as Mary didn't just watch you do something and then go back home, but she watched you do it and then she honored you with how she behaved and responded. So so may we follow her example today. We pray that we would value Jesus most of all, the one who paid it all for us. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen.